you. Welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today we're talking about Stand By Me. And as happens when we talk about Stephen King uh, derived titles, we'll be talking as much about the source material, the 1982 novella, The Body, as we will be talking about Stand By Me. But if you have read The Body but not seen Stand By Me, or you've seen Stand By Me or not read The Body, or you've never engaged either of these things, You'll be at home in this conversation, we assure. So please hang out with us uh, while we talk about Stand By Me. I am Alex Steed. I'm one of your hosts. I'll soon be joined by my marvelous co-host, Sarah Marshall. First, I just want to let you know that You Are Good is made possible with your support. Thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon and on Apple Plus subscriptions. Thank you. Thank you. You make this whole thing possible. You get everyone paid. You help support artists by way of doing that. We appreciate what you do and you get bonus episodes. Earlier this month, we did a longer extended episode uh, of, of our conversation with Fangirl Jean about Superman. So there's like a director's cut episode. You, you get the bonus episodes. There's uh, sometimes live streams. It's good. I think <laughs> we appreciate your support. Thank you for everything you do. You are good. We appreciate you. You are good is also made possible with support by Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory, a commercial and creative video content production company with offices in Portland, Maine, though they do work throughout these here United States. If you need that sort of work done, get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory. And we have playlists that accompany uh, every episode. The playlists are inspired by our conversations about the movie as much as they're inspired by the movie itself or themselves, the movies themselves. You can find that linked in the show notes. Uh, people seem to enjoy them. Thank you so much for uh, listening to the music we're, we're uh, fond of. <laughs> For those who are not in the know, Stand By Me is a 1986 American coming-of-age film directed by Rob Reiner. It is based on Stephen King's 1982 novella, The Body. And the title drives, of course, from the song by B.E. King. Will Wheaton, River Phoenix, Corey Feldman, and Jerry O'Connell stars four boys who in 1959 go on a hike to find the dead body of a missing boy. One thing we just want to note because it comes up, but we don't address it directly. So you just have some reference for what we're talking about is the body takes place in Maine and stand by me, the adaptation, which is very, very faithful in many, many ways. Uh, but it takes place in Oregon. So we're going to mention that a couple of times, but I don't think we state it directly. So there, you know, there's that for your reference. And finally, a content warning, uh, stand by me deals with kids that are dealing with various levels of neglect at home from outright hostile, uh, violent abuse to kind of being forgotten in the face of, uh, various kinds of trauma. So that is a thing that comes up throughout this episode. And, uh, I just want to let you know about that in case that's a thing, uh, you are trying not to listen to. All right, everybody. How are you doing? How's it going out there? We appreciate that you're here. Thank you so much for everything you do by uh, making this show possible. Thanks for listening so that we can talk about movies <laughs> and talk about feelings. This is our favorite. Uh, I hope everything's all right for you right now. You are good, my friend. Thanks for being here. Now let's, uh, let's go look at a dead body. <laughs> All right. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. Not if I see you first. That was All right. a reference. <laughs> well, you're in you're in Oregon. Mm -hmm. As always. And I'm curious if anyone is talking with a Maine accent. 
Is anyone talking <laughs> about the main accent over there? So we're talking about Stand By Me. We're also talking about the Stephen King novella, The Body, which we had both planned to read. And then I was very busy doing some urgent serial killer reading this week. And I can tell you about the historic roots of tween boys wanting to see dead bodies because of that. Sure. But you are the one who has read the story. This had me thinking so much about like Stephen King and who Stephen King was when this movie came out, not necessarily when the book came out. I think mm-hmm. the book came out in 80. And it had me thinking about like, like with regard to about being like, he's a pulp horror writer. Mm-hmm. And he also just so happens to have written a coming of age story that reflects some stuff that I relate to and with. And I think that like, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people were just like, well, he's a, he just writes, you know, filthy, bloody, scary stories. How could he possibly know how to write a human story? (laughs) Turns out humans have a lot of blood in them. (laughs) Yeah. They have so (laughs) much blood in them, but like this comes from the same collection that uh, Shawshank Redemption comes from. I think at the end of the day, these are like his most known or loved stories because whether or not you like capital H genre horror, Mm. these are ones that draw, at least this one draws more from his youth. It seems like they draw from human stories and human horrors rather than being horror stories that are actually about human horrors, but because there's a monster and then people think that they're stupid. Yeah, well, that was well said. Yeah, so this <laughs> the story was in Different Seasons, which came out in 1982. I bought it at Goodwill for $1.99 a long time ago, and you also can. <laughs> and uh, this also has apt people in it, yes. which supports your thesis very nicely. Another just human horror story. So we're covering this because it's a end of summer movie as far as we're concerned. Yeah, it is, isn't it? In referring to the different seasons as each story representing a season, King refers to this one as representing the fall of innocence of coming of Mm. age. You know, it's about boys who leave the confines of their home for two full days to go on an adventure. And they refer to coming home in the town feeling smaller. And that's because they've essentially aged at least five years on this trip. Mm. And, you know, at the end of the day, fascinatingly, the story is about the horrors of growing up in a small town, the horrors of growing up under at least one, if not several horrors manufactured or created by the military industrial complex mm-hmm. and the horrors of being raised under the toxic masculine expectations of the scary fucking undone men in your life. Mm-hmm. And then it's about why we gravitate towards horror. Mm. There's a great excerpt that doesn't even go into horror. It it makes it sort of more identifiable to like a kid of the era. So this is the narrator speaking in his grown self, who in the movie is played by Richard... um, What's his name? Dreyfus. By Richard Dreyfus. You're like, oh, Will Wheaton turned into Richard Dreyfus. He really did age a lot inside on that trip. Yeah, it was a hard 21 years. (laughs) 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 Or whatever it is. So he says... I think I began to understand a little bit that day what makes men become daredevils. I paid $20 to watch Evil Knievel attempt his jump over the Snake River Canyon a couple of years ago, and my wife was horrified. 
She told me that if I'd been born a Roman, I would have been right there in the Colosseum munching grapes and watching as the lions disemboweled the Christians. She was wrong, although it was hard for me to explain why. And really, I think she thought that I was just jiving her. I didn't cough up that 20 to watch the man die on coast to coast closed circuit TV, although I was quite sure that was exactly what was going to happen. I went because of the shadows that are always somewhere behind our eyes, Mm -hmm. because of what Bruce Springsteen calls the darkness on the edge of town and one of his songs. (laughs) I think the song is called Darkness on the Edge of Town, Steve. (laughs) Yeah, Steve, you know the name of the song, but that's pretty cute that you're pretending you don't. And at one time or another, I think everyone wants to dare that darkness in spite of the jalopy bodies that some joker of a god gave us as human beings. No, not in spite of our jalopy bodies, but because of them. This is like the time where I just have to be like, I love Stephen King. I love (laughs) Stephen King so much. I'm not a disinterested party here. And like, it's better to just be like, listen, you're hearing the opinions of someone who loves Stephen King (laughs) and who would say that he is the great popular storyteller of the second half of the century that we've actually been out of for quite some time. (laughs) I don't understand at all what Stephen King is involved in at a trial level that has to do with like an antitrust suit with publishers. I have no idea. Oh, that's going on right now? Yeah, that's Mm. going on right now. And someone had tweeted the other day that in his introduction of himself at his trial, he referred to himself as a freelance writer, (laughs) as a freelance author. And he refers to himself as that in this book. Hmm. And he talks about how silly he still feels when he has to write out his profession and he writes down freelance author. Mm. I would just say writer. Yeah, you could do that for <laughs> At sure. This point. That's what I tell customs and they don't believe it either. <laughs> and the other the other fun thing that I found in watching it this go and which is totally divorced from all that is um his reference to Sid Caesar, which is funny when you consider that Rob Reiner comes and directs the movie and his dad is Sid Caesar's uh main writer. So I thought that was like a really fun. I wonder if they joshed about that when they were putting the movie together. I hope so. Yeah. I have had reason this summer to contemplate the like Reiner run of the 80s because mm. you like put it all together and you have this is Spinal Tap, the sure thing, mm. which then is why we have John Cusack yeah. in this in 1986. Then we have The Princess Bride. And then I don't know what was happening for a couple of years. And then Misery, which is another Stephen King joint, and which Stephen King was like being careful about who he allowed to adapt. And he was like, well, Reiner can do it. You also have that connection where like one of the heavies, the weakest heavy in this movie is Dave of Dave and Chainsaw. Oh, that's right. From Carl wow. Reiner's Summer School. From our favorite movie, Summer School. <laughs> which came out the year after this. From one of my favorites for sure. And I wonder if Carl was like, hey, Meathead, do you happen to know anyone I can make a like a real boner in my movie? And he's like, yes, I do. You know those like 25 no good <laughs> he had running around would any of them be good (laughs) why so sarah god damn we're so far in and we haven't even touched what this movie's about do you want to give a synopsis about what stand by me is yes with all my heart so i hadn't watched this movie before this week because i have uh or had for a long time a like absolute phobia of vomiting any movie with a vomit scene, like anything to do with any of that, I was just like, no, thank you. Like, show me the gore. But if someone throws up, I am like getting out of town. Fair. And so I never saw this movie because it's famous for having 
a used blueberry scene to put it yep. as Gordy does. So I finally watched it. And first of all, if you've been avoiding it because you're afraid of puke scenes like I am, I do think it's like a fairly good step on the journey of desensitization because <laughs> it's like very over the top, clearly fake like movie barf. It's it's um you're like relatively safe. Sure. So aside from that, Stand By Me is a movie about four kids. And if this is based on when Stephen King would have been 12, I think the summer of 1961, they're 12 going on 13. Yes. And the book at 60, which makes me wonder why in the movie they made it 59. I think that maybe huh. they had to decidedly make, make it the 50s. Like maybe that's why. But I thought that that was interesting. That is interesting. So it's 60 book 59 here. Yes. I love that we're doing this the same summer that we did My Girl and Now and Then. And of course, this is another movie, as with My Girl, where it seems possible that they like had the movie made. They didn't know what to call it. They're like, we can't call this born <laughs> jaundice, but what are we going to call it? And they're yeah. like, what song are we playing in the credits? Let's call it that. Fair. Totally. And so it's about our main character, Gordy played by Will Wheaton, Gordy Lachance, who's wonderful, amazing brother played by John Cusack in Flashdance. Oh, my flashbacks. I guess it's Flashdance <laughs> instead of flashbacks. And basically, Gordy is haunted by his brother's recent death in an accident and his probably accurate belief that his dad wishes that he was the one who had died. And his mom is the mom from Gremlins, which is... <laughs> So this child, who is being raised by two traumatized veterans of other horror movies, they're just like out to lunch. So Gordy's dealing with that. And so we meet his friends, Chris Chambers, whose older brother is in a gang that runs around with Kiefer Sutherland, who's like the worst of all the greasers in town. I don't think they're greasers, but that's my catch-all word for anyone who is making trouble in the 50s. Yeah. And... Chris is played by River Phoenix. He plays a character who died young mm. randomly. And River Phoenix was someone who died young and randomly. And so you can't watch it without knowing that. And mm -hmm. then we have Teddy Duchamp played by Corey Feldman in the first of his two 80s summer movie standoffs with Kiefer Sutherland, <laughs> whose dad is... A very damaged guy who almost burned Teddy's ear off on one occasion, and yet of whom Teddy is very protective. And in the book, he tries to burn both ears off. Oh, God. They're like, <laughs> we can't do two ears. It'd be hard to understand why he still likes his dad. So let's just do one ear. That pairs interestingly with the fact that in the book of Misery, Annie chops one of Paul's feet off. And then in the movie, right. they were like, somebody was like, that's too much. Let's just have her break both of his ankles. Like the kind of math you have to do in adapting Stephen King is like, yes, <laughs> it's really weird. <laughs> yes, totally. Yes. So we have Teddy and then rounding out our group, we have Fern played by Jerry O'Connell. And one of my cats is named Werner, but I call him Vern. And this movie like hits differently since I have a child named Vern. Aww. And Vern is just like the innocent of the group, I think. He's like, he's, you know, my favorite line in this movie is just jumping all around. So we have the famous pie-eating barfathon story comes much later. Gordy tells it to everybody while they're around a campfire. And 
then afterwards, the other boys are dissatisfied with the ending and they're kind of like, they're workshopping it. And Vern is like, but did Lardass have to pay to get into the contest? And Gordy is like, no, Vern, they just let him in. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. And he's just like totally relieved. He's like, oh, okay. He's like, that's fine. (laughs) There's another line where like they're just about to set out. And I can't remember exactly what it is that like Vern checks in on, but he's like, he says something He's like, we should do this. And like, everyone just kind of brushes it off. And Gordy's like, yeah, Vern, that's a good idea. And it really (laughs) feels like Gordy's like helping Vern. Cause like Gordy also knows that his dad hates all of these kids for being deadbeats in one way or another. Yeah. And I feel like uh, that we're doing some lifting there too, which is nice. Yes. Oh, and also Vern's last name is Tessio, so I'm sure that there's like some anti-Italian sentiment mm-hmm. happening here in 1959 New England slash Oregon. And so Vern is the one who, <laughs> in like the best way possible, finds out about what's going to be their mission because he saved a jar of pennies and then buried it under the porch and then drew a treasure map to it that his mom threw away. So he's been spending months like digging holes under his porch, trying to find his jar of pennies. And like, yeah, I guess, I don't know. I love Vern so much. He represents Me too. something in all this. He's like the pure heart of boyhood or something. Speaking of just King off the rails that you mm-hmm. need to be like, hey, we're adapting this into a movie that we want people to watch and then not kill themselves right after. <laughs> Both Vern and Teddy die really young. <gasps> In their their lives. Like they they both have sad ends. I thought you were gonna say they died like in the course of like the expedition in the story, and like it, that's still pretty bad. No, though. but no, but they die. I think they both die before 20. Right. So it is like a much more Stephen King story to be yeah. like, and I'm the last survivor. <laughs> we get this whole talk where Chris is like, your friends hold you back from like getting out of town, which is like so real like such a real thing he says in a movie that everyone would be like it's so nice the leeches haha the story and it's like (laughs) some of the wrong friends are gonna hold you back from getting the fuck out of town and those are the two that end up dying very very tragically next to chris who also dies tragically also those leeches are very traumatizing that's one of the scenes that's made me feel very grateful i don't have a dick and balls I thought when I was a kid for the longest time that they took his dick. We get no resolve. He puts his hand in his pants. It's bloody. No one talks about it later. I was like, oh, no. That's a good point. And it's a really big leech. It looks like it left nothing but a shriveled husk behind. Yeah, maybe it ate a whole dick. Honestly, I think like this summer was when I became finally old enough for this movie. So, you know, it's just, it's for whenever you're ready. Yes. Okay. So Vern is looking for his jar of pennies under his porch and he hears his older brother who is his brother eyeball or is eyeball Chris's brother? Or is he a whole other person who's no one's brother? Dave is not his brother. I thought it was his brother. I think his brother might be eyeball. I thought Kiefer Sutherland was somebody's brother the whole time. And then it turned out he wasn't. And like, I don't know. I don't know why I thought that. He just feels like he just he has menacing big brother energy, I guess. Totally. He is the nephew of a character that dies in another collection of Stephen King short stories called the Sun's something dog, Sun dog. He's the he shows up in one other story. Hmm. And it's, I think, the worst Stephen King story. Really? <laughs> All right. <laughs> But he's like, we need to connect the universe. That's what I'm doing. I'm building a world. So 
Good for him. When we're done with the MCU, which will never happen, I would love to just have like, I mean, I know that Stephen King is like the most adaptive living writer on Earth, probably, but it would be nice to have the King see you yeah, for as, sure. as an official thing. I would enjoy it. Anyway, Vern is looking for his jar of pennies. He hears his older brother and one of his like no good Nick friends talking about how they were out joyriding in a car that they had boosted, I think. This is all language I'm borrowing from, like, on the road. And saw the dead body in the forest of a kid who was missing and who was apparently hit by a train. Which I'm curious about because, like, they seem to be nowhere near the railroad tracks when they find this body. But I guess it, like, it's, like, down a little, like, hill. In the book, yeah, he got knocked out of his shoes and went, like, 30 feet or something. Oh, God. So the older boys are like debating over whether to tell someone about it. And they're like, we can't tell anyone because they'll suspect us. And then they'll be like, how did you get out there in a stolen car by chance? And so they're just going to stay quiet about the whole thing. And so Vern tells the other boys about what he found. And they all decide to go on a two day long (laughs) excursion, hiking out to see the body and then to become heroes by retrieving it. And, you know, bringing a fellow kid to his final resting place, basically. And they obviously decide to do this by walking along the train tracks for most of the way, because it does. It feels like perfectly of that, like 12 year old mindset of like, let's go see the body of the kid who died, which is fascinating because it's a kid like us who died and was killed by a train. How will we get there? Walking on the train tracks. Right. As, and as Carolyn said, while well, she was like, just like walking in and out of this movie, she was like, oh, I get it. The train tracks is life and they're going to go see someone who's dead. And I was like, yeah, hmm. <laughs> cool. Yeah, you're right. That comment <laughs> relates to a thought I had near the end of this movie, because then the rest of the movie is like them going on that journey yep. and all the things they have to go through to get there and then getting to the body and having a confrontation with the horrible older boys And, you know, mostly the relationship between Chris and Gordy is what we focus on. But toward the end, I was like, this feels like a French movie to me. Like, this feels like, especially the fact that, I mean, A, that it's so beautiful. And I know I'm biased toward this because it's comparatively rare to have a movie that is both shot and set in Portland or Oregon. You'll often get one of them, but not both at the same time. And so I love, you know, seeing the place that I know kind of looking as beautiful as as it does to me, but in a way that's translated for everybody. But also that there's two long dialogue scenes between Chris and Gordy, which like culminates each of them in one of the boys crying. And just like that much attention to sort of the emotional lives of tween boys. That was my favorite part of it. And it felt very un-American to me. (laughs) Or it feels like a Gus Van Sant movie because to that point, I mean, Gus Van Sant was basically just making gay Northwestern French movies, but like Mm. he, you know, like I just was like, wait, is River Phoenix from Oregon? Looked it up. Yes, he's from Oregon. Wait, is he? Yeah. Where are all our historical plaques? What have we been doing with our time? And then I was like, what other movie does this feel like in that way? And it feels like My Own Private Idaho, which is about two slightly older boys Mm. going on sort of a series of fruitless and sometimes dangerous adventures, but really big about advancing them and where where their lives are and crying together and feeling sensitive and undone. Mm -hmm. And My Own Private Idaho, in like a lot of ways, Phoenix's 
character feels a lot more like Gordy and Keanu Reeves character feels a lot more like Chris, but like, it's a very similar relationship, which is nice. I guess Oregon's a, a great place to meander and feel your feels. <laughs> As you did that there recently with me, I feel like our trip to the, the duck egg <laughs> farm was very stand by me. We meandered and felt feels. Totally. Yeah, yeah, that's true. We're like getting into that country. I mean, can I say like before I saw this movie, I knew that River Phoenix, the Chris Chambers character, that his end was that he died trying to break up a fight in a restaurant yes. um, and getting stabbed in the throat. So for like years before ever seeing this movie, it has been one of my specific fears that like you the Chris Chambers of my life will die getting stabbed in the throat in a restaurant when you're trying to peacemake. So like, if that does happen, I'll accept it. But like, don't do that. <laughs> well, I've, I've said as much on the show, maybe I have, or maybe I've said it just in my head when, it come, when it's come up, but I, for the very longest time, and it's still, I'm not convinced this isn't going to happen. Like, but I, for the longest time, just figured that that was how I was going to die. I think probably you said something like that to me. And that's why I was like, okay, that'll be one of my specific fears uh, but i just am involved immediately if there's something that's going on like yeah. i just can't stop it if i see shit like i get involved and i'm nearly positive i'm gonna get executed right and like i will not get involved if i see someone struggling to use a pepper shaker that i understand why they're having trouble with i'm like this person might explode at me if i don't explain it right so i just have to keep reading my book I was surprised also watching the movie for the first time in a hundred years that it just opens with, I understand that we don't know anyone's name yet, so we don't know the significance, but the first thing we see mm -hmm. is the newspaper that says that Chris has been stabbed to death. And obviously my first response to that was like, oh, it's the Oregonian. They used a real newspaper. That's wonderful. <laughs> the Oregonian gets smaller all the time. It's now the size of a sandwich. It's very sad. It looked great in the 80s, though. It was huge. Yeah, I, I liked, you know, because like I remember like watching initially watching this and then just being devastated to learn mm -hmm. that he died. Yeah. And I was like, oh, they just they just tell you right up front. That's cool. Yeah. We got the narration at the end reminding us that Chris is going to be killed in a random altercation, you know, in his 30s, I guess. And we hear that in voiceover, like as he and Gordy are walking away from each other and as Chris is waving goodbye. And it's this thing of like being told how someone's going to die, like when you're still seeing them in a movie, like there's something, yeah. something about the, the way that time keeps folding back on itself over totally. and over feels embodied in that the sort of you know time is a flat circle but it's also like christmas ribbon candy <laughs> yeah well and it's the it's the real actually like if you think about it like that is the realest representation of looking at text and subtext at the same time yeah because we all know that the person we are talking with at the moment are going to die at some point right like yeah but like we do everything we can <laughs> With the exception of this conversation, many of the conversations we have, we do everything we can to grasp any other piece of information <laughs> about yeah. that person while they're in front of us, you know, because that's how we're relating. But like every one of them, we know at some point, you know, if a movie was made, someone's going to be reading the postscript <laughs> that explains when that person left the planet. <sighs> so, yeah, it's kind of the real. And I think like I think honestly, I think that that's the reason why they changed the other deaths 
for the movie mm-hmm. is not just going like having all three of his friends die young probably mm-hmm. sucks a lot for everyone. But I think also like it just strikes me that it makes Chris's death a much bigger hit when you find yeah. out that like the other two boys are just towny bullies, which is like <laughs> kind of a, a sadder fate. Like that is what happens to them as they kind of replace hmm. the elder bullies as they get older and then they become sort of like towny locals who work at the mill and then to find out that chris died when he finally got out of town which is getting to portland which to many people outside of maine might not sound huge Mm -hmm. but for many mainers in especially around this time just like the idea of getting to developed maine Mm -hmm. was a big big deal Hmm. And he got killed there. Probably at an overpriced restaurant. Yeah, well, he died in the book at a, some Stephen King universe version of a KFC. Of course. Bummer. Can you talk about just like how the, the story translates to movie? You know, I, I was really, despite any of the differences I've just brought up, I was surprised at how faithful an adaptation this is. Hmm. I mean, it's like down to the sequencing, down to how much time is spent on each of these events that happens. Like... The events are like at once inconsequential and totally consequential. It's like, you know, running from a train that could fucking kill you. Mm -hmm. It's finding a body. It's like being in a battle with these kids where like no one knows what the difference between like rhetoric and reality is. And they when they say that they're literally going to kill you, they could be literally on the way to killing you like both by way of like what happens in the plot and then just like the vibe that's conveyed in that plot it's a very very faithful adaptation Mm -hmm. i mean there are a couple pieces that shift a little bit the only thing that i felt by no means do i feel like it's missing because it's just like handled differently but the description of like what they run into when they see the body Mm. and what that means to them that's the only thing that in the movie i was like ah like there's 13 minutes left and they just found this body like this is like a pretty big deal Mm -hmm. for them but like really it's about like what happens to them along the way I get that Uh, this is another sort of long piece I'm going to read from the book that I think is like really great because I think it's like really the most important thing that happened so this is from Gordon's perspective that finally rammed it all the way home for me the kid was dead the kid wasn't sick the kid wasn't sleeping The kid wasn't going to get up in the morning anymore or get the runs from eating too many apples or catch poison ivy or wear out the eraser at the end of his Tarragonia. How do you say that? Ticonderoga. Holy shit. Ticonderoga (laughs) number two during the hard math test. That's great, Steve. Good job. This is a revolutionary war battle they fought with pencils. This is a guy that just has held a pencil for a long time. The kid was dead, stone dead. The kid was never going to go out bottling with his friends in the spring, gunny sack over his shoulder to pick up the returnables, the retreating snow uncovered. The kid wasn't going to wake up at two o'clock in the morning on November 1st this year, run to the bathroom and vomit up a big glurg of cheap Halloween candy. (laughs) The kid wasn't going to pull a single girl's braid in homeroom. The kid wasn't going to give a bloody nose or get one. The kid can't, don't, won't, never, shouldn't, wouldn't, couldn't. He was on the side of the battery where the terminal says neg, the fuse you have to put a penny in, the wastebasket by the teacher's desk, which always smells of wood shavings from the sharpener and dead orange peels from lunch, (laughs) the haunted house outside of the town where the windows are crashed out, the no trespassing signs whipped away across the fields, the attic full of bats, the cells full of rats, the kid was dead, mister, ma'am, young sir, little miss. I could go on all day and never get it right about the distance between his bare feet and the ground and the dirty kids hanging from the bushes. It was 30 plus inches. 
It was a Google of light years. The kid was disconnected from his kids beyond all hope of reconciliation. He was dead. And like just him relating the death to his entire lived experience and realizing that like death wasn't this other thing. It was the cessation of the things that he knows. Yeah. And I just say it was incredibly beautiful the way that it was phrased and framed in that way. And it's too long for a voiceover. Mm-hmm. You kind of get it in the after effects of the fact that they go back to the town and feel like it's small. I feel like it was handled in a very beautiful series of ways that it was in the movie. But long story short, being that like this story and this movie feel very much of the same fabric mm-hmm. in a way that a lot of Stephen King adaptations, mm-hmm. you know, Sometimes you feel like they took a little bit too hard of a series of turns uh, rather than honor what, you know, Stephen had suggested they do. (laughs) Which ones come to mind for that, aside from Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, obviously? (laughs) Well, so I think like some that strike me immediately are the Tommyknockers, Mm. I think, is one. I never saw that, but we sang the little song from it in sixth grade. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the Langoliers. And these these are kind of ones that I feel like the decisions were made by just knowing the fabrics of those movies mm-hmm. that was made. The decisions were made more by budget than by vision. And I think those are both <laughs> TV movies, too, where, yeah, you just have a lot less freedom. Yeah, this felt faithful. This felt like it was a collaboration and not like a arduous uh, agreement of convenience, I guess. Right. But I feel like there's two basic schools of adaptation. And one is the like good bones style of adaptation where like the same way that people move into a house and they're like this has good bones and then they take out all the wonderful 1970s linoleum that i can therefore never find in portland's housing market (laughs) and then there's like the sort of scorsese school of like what do the sentences say how can we dramatize this like one description of a hand like how can we you know just the sort of like truffler instinct for like how can we dig out like all of the useful stuff that this book has to give us that we can dramatize as opposed to like tossing it all out for some reason and then doing it again ourselves either for sheer marketability or because it would be embarrassing to like adapt someone else's work fundamentally. That's great. I think that like that's a great way to look at it. And I think that like often people are frustrated with an adaptation for not doing what they want it to because the adaptation is taking the good bone style. And I think that that's like Mm -hmm. often probably the right way because like a director does have their own vision. And I think that that's, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes or often a very important thing to do. But sometimes the director's vision is lame. (laughs) Well, it's and sometimes like it's like the best a director can do is to midwife a great story to the screen. Mm-hmm. The thing that we talked a bit about in Misery when we we talked about the page to screen there. So this is a story that very much is King talking about himself as a writer, which I, you know, you get a little mm-hmm. bit of that in almost every Stephen King book, but like mm-hmm. in Misery, it's very that. And in this also, it's very that. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think that like, those are things that like Reiner read and was like, I get this as a person who makes things. And perhaps that's why Will Wheaton grew up to become Jewish, as every little boy in Oregon dreams. That's why. That is it's precisely Sarah. That is why, as we know from our lack of research. But the, the <laughs> um you know, in the book 
or in the novella, mm-hmm. he refers to like his earlier writing as hack. Like in the middle of the novella is a chapter from one of his early things that he wrote in which he mm-hmm. completely unsegued, in which he explains <laughs> why it sucks. <laughs> he also describes his misogyny in writing like in how he treats the characters Hmm. in the story which is really interesting and like this is like clearly a man who has gotten recognition and he talks about a lot i mean like i think like in the story he's written three pieces that in succession all became big movies and he's like you know Hmm. like this is like very it is stephen king right like there's like no you can't be like oh it's based on that other writer who kept having their early pieces adapted into giant movies it's like oh totally which one (laughs) and he's he's kind of talking about like this is a person who's like found success who is now paid attention to who i'm sure is now like reading criticism of himself and like his earlier stuff Mm -hmm. is because of this success finding like more time at home like he's describing what his life is like at home as like the father of three kids and as the husband Mm -hmm. of a wife who's happy to have him home and like yeah this is this is a person who in this book again you're telling on yourself by you know like Tarantino with feet like not like that sort of thing it's like he's fucking telling on himself like he's like here read this thing I wrote Mm -hmm. it's shitty here's the reasons why it's shitty like Stephen King was always like come with me while I tell you the story but I'll also tell you about some worse stories I told once I'll also tell Mm -hmm. you about like how I've talked before about how Stephen King writes sex scenes like he's never had sex before or like he's had sex with one person for 55 years yes and I must have lifted that joke from him because he says that about himself in this story like he's like this is the story clearly of a guy who's had sex like once you know and like that's his whole (laughs) understanding of like how like being a man around women work like I was Mm -hmm. actually absolutely shocked at how clear he was in his ability to talk about who he is what he was what his journey was as a writer etc and I imagine if you're Reiner Mm -hmm. and you're reading this you're like holy shit Mm -hmm. like not only is this a good coming of age story, this is a good story of a person who understands what it's like to like be developing as an artist in public, which is what Reiner had mm-hmm. been doing for 15 years prior. Well, and I listened to the director's commentary for Misery the other day because like when I don't know what else to do with myself, I will listen to a director's commentary while watering my plants or whatever. And obviously I know exactly what happens in Misery <laughs> when, so I don't have to watch it with the movie. Yeah. And he, Rob Reiner talks in that commentary about like, you know, I identified with this story because I had been doing comedy to this point and I was trying to do something new as a director. And you have a fear as a creative person that your audience will not allow you to change. Basically, that's my paraphrase of it. And this is like the King Reiner Goldman era. Yes. And like everyone kind of moves one to the left because William Goldman, who was my favorite writer when I was growing up, who wrote The Princess Bride, He also wrote what is, as far as I can tell, like the first modern serial killer novel, No Way to Treat a Lady, which came out in 1964 and was also made into a movie starring George Siegel, which nobody watches anymore. And he adapted All the President's Men, and then he started adapting his own novels and then did the screenplay for Misery. So you have like essentially like three people who are all like, spend a lot of time in the art of adaptation Mm. and who then are turning around and like adapting each other's work and also and William Goldman 
like Stephen King has written a lot about storytelling from the perspective of like, here's how I did it. It's not that hard. You just, I mean, it is hard. You have to put in like hundreds and thousands of hours, but like, Hey, I did it. If I did it, you could do it to some extent. Here's how you do it. It's just, they, they both have written about writing with the attitude of like, someone who was a tailor for 50 years and it's like here's how you cut a suit and without this which i really appreciate and i appreciated it even more when i was 12. (laughs) yeah i just i've always needed to be backstage in some way you know literally or metaphorically and Mm -hmm. you know anytime i will talk about like when stephen king makes some point or whatever someone will always and it's totally like this is great and i love that people are trying to relate on this level, but every single time people are like, have mm-hmm. you read on writing? And it's like, yes, I, A, I have, I read, I opened the book, I read it, <laughs> but B, I read it every time he explained to you how to write in every one of his stories as well. Like on right. writing was just right. him. Misery is on writing the prelude. Totally. It's just like control F every time he <laughs> mentioned writing in, in his books, it put in a book. Yeah. Like adapting King's books were huge for Reiner. Not like he didn't have a great career. Just two boys helping each other out. Just two boys on the road holding each other yes. by the fire. Just two boys together. To your point, being generous. <laughs> yeah. Like being very generous with, it's seemingly very, very generous with each other's work. And like, I've always said, like, when I was more of a journalist than I am now, and when I'd interview people and stuff, like, I'd always tell people, like, look, like, unless you're admitting, like, a crime, like, (laughs) unless you're, like, admitting that, like, you are a nefarious asshole, like, my goal as an interviewer is to, like, be generous to you. Mm -hmm. Like, my goal is to, like, give you space to be the most yourself and to, like, edit kind of what you've said into, like, the most you version of that and not, like gotcha and Mm -hmm. it so feels like that's what's happening in these adaptations is like Hmm. they recognize each other in whatever way and they're being generous well much more reiner to king because he's working with his source text but like it feels like there's a generosity there (laughs) i I was just thinking it'd be really funny if this was more reciprocal because that would mean that stephen king (laughs) would write the novelization of the sure thing which he would have done a great job with Oh my god. Do you know one of the things that I found very surprising with regard to the parallel cuz you said you see River Phoenix die young and yeah. you know he dies young or whatever is like the description of him getting killed is he gets killed by someone who's been in and out of Shawshank which gives us the impression that this is a person who's been having a difficult time mm-hmm. is is probably much like like one of the adversaries they face in the childhood among these mm-hmm. kids one of whom is played by Keeper Sutherland but it's also the exact description of Stephen King getting hit by that serial drunk driver oh I always heard that there was an unsecured dog in that car and that's why that happened that guy had eight or nine hmm. prior uh, drunk driving arrests. Uh, don't blame the dog, you guys. Yeah, that guy had like a real history in uh, whatever, like I, you know, ad- addiction, et cetera, incarceration. There's all mm-hmm. all sorts of things we could talk about, but like it was striking reading the description of of who killed Chris, being like, "Oh God, Stephen, you <laughs> you've got it coming at some point." Well, yeah. And famously, like when because I think I mean, he was like he was very badly injured. And I this might be apocryphal, but I'm it feels true to me that all the medical professionals who took care of him were on strict orders, not to mention misery, (laughs) which like, yeah, I wouldn't. But I can see how other people would have to be told to not do that. (laughs) I just heard a really amazing interview with um, John Prine. 
And he was talking about when he was having like the throat. He had. The, do you have a tracheotomy? Yeah. Well, he had several kinds of. He had like one throat cancer on top of another. Mm. And he, they were talking about when they were doing the um, radiation about having mm-hmm. to shield the vocal cords, and about the person who was in charge of doing that. He learned after the fact was a fan. Oh. You know, and just like the funniest possible, amazing John Finway <laughs> was like, "Well, you heard the way I sang before." You know, like <laughs> that is like thinking about like fandom and like how to be a fan, fan love, as Annie Wilkes would put it. It is like that strikes me as as the real way to do it. Just like don't announce yourself. Don't make a big deal of it. Just like protect somebody's vocal cords if you have the means. Yeah, totally. Because, you know, it's important. Mm-hmm. What, so what struck you as a person who came to this movie late? It's interesting. So I watched this with my friend from high school who I've been very close with for coming up on 20 years. And it ends with Gordy musing about, you know, I forget what the line is, but does anyone have friends like they do when they're 12, basically? Right. Like, I, I guess nobody does. And it's a really beautiful ending, too, in the movie where, like, he kind of wraps up writing for the day and then he takes his kid and his kid's friend to the pool. And it's kind of this, like circle of life ending where it's like, you know, now it's somebody else's turn to be 12. And when it got to that ending, I was like, well, I didn't have any friends when I was 12. Uh, So I win. (laughs) I have nothing to be nostalgic for because I was such a loner. Um, And then I am still very close with my two closest friends from high school. So I, it's funny. I feel like both very part of this movie and very not like not part of in the sense that I didn't get to have that kind of experience of early adolescence and part of it in the sense that I've really like intentionally shaped a lot of my life around the maintenance of friendships. And yeah, I recommend that. And then also I was thinking today and I was like, Oh no, I did have a friend when I was 12 but she's dead now. And I was like, I think that's sadder. (laughs) Um, And I'm laughing because that's how I respond to how horrible life is. So that's why I'm doing that. I think the realest thing in the book compared to the movie, this only change is I'm surprised at how many people I was 12 with who are dead. Yeah. It seems like it should be less. (laughs) And again, I'm laughing because it's horrifying. For people who don't know, you're not an old, old man. You're a you're not even a Gen Xer. I'm 39 years old. And as I've said it however many times, my dad always used to say, there's three thinnings of the herd. And the first one happens when you're in high school, which is like mm. when not like not just one person dies, but enough for you to think that there's an evil force around. Mm-hmm. Like this movie's not about deep 12-year-old friendships. This movie is about having a two-day-long deep series of friendships with one kid who you become kind of best friends with, and then Mm -hmm. two other kids who you have a tenuous relationship with for the rest of your high school career before they die. And their fates, the movie fate versus the fate in the book, I mean, obviously you'd prefer not to die, but they're both very unremarkable fates. Yeah, they both end up kind of trapped in the town where they're from, is what it feels like. Yeah. How do they die in the book? Do they get into that? In the book, one of them dies, I think it's, what's Jerry O'Connell's character's name? Vern. I think Vern dies in a car accident where he kills several other people mm, in the car burn. as well. Oh, Vern. And I can't remember. Oh, Teddy dies in a fire. Mm. 
after not being allowed into the army because of his various uh, handicaps. I'm glad the army didn't let Teddy in. I don't think Teddy needs that on top of everything else. The army already handicapped Teddy. Right. Teddy is collateral from birth. This whole thing where it's like, yeah, these boys are fucked up. Mm-hmm. You know, in the Make America, when people are saying Make America, when white people are saying Make America Great Again mm-hmm. and they're talking about this time, they are not imagining Stephen King's telling of it because in Stephen King's telling of it, he's like, hey, we're already fucking the kids up. Mm-hmm. We're either making them insecure and terrified or tiny little fucking, I was going to say sociopaths, but I know that's not fair. Like little crumb killing machines. <laughs> yeah, little crumb bumps. <laughs> and then what you're going to do is you're going to turn around and say, it's me who's doing it. And he's like, no, no, no. I went to school with all these kids mm-hmm. in unresolved mental illness issues relating to the war and fucking bad ideas of masculinity are what fucked everyone up. Yeah. And that's why we're drawn to horror. Mm -hmm. I don't want to, by no means am I equipped to have a conversation about like Stephen King's relationship with like obesity and fatness Mm -hmm. in in books. uh, Because I know that there are many complaints from people who are fat, who feel like Stephen King has a hostility towards them. And some, and I think they're right. Yes. People who say that it seems to Mm -hmm. derive from his insecurity about his body at particular times. But even in this, like the punchline in the story, at least, and in the movie of the the pie-eating guy. Yes, it seems like because of the the things that these 12-year-olds fixate on talking about in the story because they're 12-year-olds mm-hmm. and because they're trying to relate by not having any feelings, not being a pussy, which they talk about all the fucking time. They really time. did, even in the movie. They're really trying to like separate themselves for that. So they're fixating on these things, the like lowest hanging thing by calling them lardass or whatever. But the moral of the story is... The town is horrendous to a fat person. Mm -hmm. Like there are several arcs in the book that play out in the movie about how satisfying it is when people who are terrorized Mm -hmm. by like the place that they come up in are able to get just one shot in. You can see how Gordy would have started off with like, because the Lardass story basically is that this kid whose real name I don't even they probably do say it, but they say it once and then it's Lardass for for a hundred mentions. But yeah, so who everybody terrorizes, his plan is that he's gonna enter the pie eating contest, intentionally barfs, and then everyone in there starts barfing, and that's like the dramatic conclusion, you know, to Lardass's suffering. And yeah, that's basically Carrie. <laughs> So yeah, so many of Stephen King's stories are about getting revenge on the town. Yeah, because the town deserves it. You know, he's dealing with what he feels like is an inherent, not just like cruelty, but like an unfairness in the town. And you get that revenge both in like this story within the story where that happens. And then you get it in like, especially for our younger listeners, Mm -hmm. I'm not advocating carrying a gun and when the bad guy in town comes around and says he's going to fuck you up pulling the gun out and be like nah you're not going to fuck me yeah, up yeah and i would even say definitely don't do that however definitely don't that but how much when you're a kid is there a fantasy of like someone giving you some fucking like insane hostile shit and you have a trump card mhm which used to mean something else yeah. It does now. <laughs> yeah, totally. I uh, was saying to you the other day, I feel like I'm finally ready to let Die Hard fully into my heart as a Christmas movie <laughs> for many reasons. But one, I watched it the other day 
And I was like, oh, my God, I get it. And it's that John McClane is like the good guy with a gun. Yes. He really makes you feel like you could be that guy, but uh, you can't be that guy. No guns. No guns for you. Thank you. But I read this being like Stephen is a, has a very difficult time using light metaphor. Very difficult. <laughs> and I see as a person who's like, I'm going to tell a story from the perspective of a kid who's like sick of living in the town and wants to get out of the town at all costs. And if he can't, what the very least set up an elaborate scheme in which everyone gets puked on. And that'll be great. <laughs> I also feel like it's important that they use the word barf in the story because then I was like, yeah, it's not a puke scene, is it? It's a barf scene. It's a barf scene. Because puke yeah, is you. violent and barf just wants to happen. Yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, about Stephen King, I mean, you know, listen, if you read Stephen King's herb, especially the early stuff, like there's incredible amounts of fat phobia on display, like to the point where you feel like even if you were writing this and on board with what you were doing, you might be like, am, this is a lot of repetition. Why am I doing this? Right. And without it being a justification, I do tend to believe that this is Stephen King working through some stuff about his own body, especially in childhood. But yeah, it is. I mean, this is like the main thing about Stephen King, I think, is that like, I love his writing so much. And I also do so with the understanding that being able to love him is a luxury. Yeah, for sure. The whole book is like looking at from like 10 or more different perspectives about like, why is everyone so mean? Yeah. And it's all obviously just like extremely unresolved insecurity. Gordon looking at Chris, Chris's dad is like drunk and violent mm -hmm. and beats the shit out of Chris. Like Chris at some point is like, I don't know if I can go look at the body because my dad's been especially on a tear lately. Mm -hmm. Like he's beating me up extra. Like, so he's dealing with that. And then Gordy is is like, my dad doesn't hit me at all, but I hate my dad more than Chris hates his dad. Mm -hmm. And he also understands where his dad is gone because his dad and his mom have lost their son that they didn't expect to have. Like they had him when they were in their mid forties. Mm. So just like this meditation, I'm like, why actually, you know, on paper, I don't have the most reasons to hate this person, but I have very, very difficult feelings about this person that's going to last for the rest of my life. I was like, well, okay, mm -hmm. well, I got it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And also Teddy, because like the, I think the most upset we see him get in the movie anyway is when they have their run in with the junkyard guy. Yeah. And Teddy's like, my father stormed the beach at Normandy. Right. And Teddy in the book visits his dad every week at the hospital for people who've lost it. <laughs> Because <laughs> what they called it at the time. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, there's so much in this and in Stephen King generally about the relationships between adults and children, not just parents, but like children and the adult world and how adults are like basically constantly giving kids the shit end of the stick and knowing that they're too powerless to do anything about it. The body more than any other story, and maybe I just need to go back and reread some of these, does a great job of itemizing literally everything in your young life and explaining how it has been pitted against you, how alienating and terrifying that is, and how beautiful it is if even for two days or for how long it is that you can live a joyous, joyful time. He talks about in the movie and in the book when Vern says says something along the lines of like, this is a great time. And he says that he's not talking about just the time that they're having in the junkyard. They're talking about something bigger, but we don't like yet have the words for it. Yeah. You know, he's describing this beautiful, almost fantastic 
occasion that happens where he was able to get away from all that. He was able to be seen for a handful of days. He was able to find love. Like I think he and Chris love each other and maybe not in a gay way, but maybe in a gay way, if that's how you're looking at it. And Mm -hmm. you know, like every time I talk, you talk about how gay Lord of the Rings is, people are like, people need examples of platonic friendship. It's important that they could just be platonic. Well, they can be platonic and that's nice. And that's the aspirational thing, or it can be a little gay and that's nice. And that's the aspirational thing. It's a fucking Rorschach test. It's a beautiful illustration of like what it's like for a kid or kids to get away from that for a couple days and then see themselves in that experience. Yeah. This movie never served this for me. I don't know if it's because I watched it too early or because later movies did it, including my own private Idaho and I never made the connections, but I would be curious to know for young queer boys where this existed for them. Or young queer girls for that matter, thinking of the case of Newsies. Yeah. Even though your parents can't see you, I can see you and I love you. Like that's happening throughout the whole exchange between these two. You know, Chris tells him he should be his dad because Gordy's dad is so sort of like neglectful and can't see him. But he eventually assures him that like he does love him. He's just like too confused about what's gone on with his brother. Does he, does he say that he loves him? Uh, I like no, this no, no. He, I, right. Because he's like, or Gordy's like, he hates me. And he's like, he doesn't hate you. He just doesn't know you. Yes. Thank you. And it's That's like, perfect. so we're not claiming that he loves you because that might be too much. But yeah, that does seem accurate. Yep. That's important. I mean, this, the, this was the aspect of the movie that made me the most emotional was like Chris kind of in this utopia that they've created of this two day trip where they're outside of town, (laughs) they're outside of society. They're kind of in their own world. Chris being able to step up and to borrow a phrase from Danny Gonzalez being a daddy boy, you know, and just, and I think there's like a general idea that people have had for a long time and continue to have that. Like when you're young, you have time for friends and then you grow up and you become very busy And you focus on your career and on falling in love and keeping your offspring from dying, all of which are very important. Yes. But I think that it's also important to not limit yourself to that. And I think that I'm somebody who like never really got that memo that you're supposed to like stop having friends like you do and stand by me and like become a romantic partner and then it's like all your intimacy goes to that person i think that's the model a lot of people live by and i'm just like yeah cool that sounds great for you i'm gonna gonna go look for dead bodies with chelsea weber smith <laughs> sure we we should do that we all yeah we should do that we'll, we'll all be in the same place soon enough yeah it's like there became a place for people like the kids in this movie and that's in podcasting <laughs> yeah and other places, but this is the one that that we washed up at. And I, I connect this movie to Newsies as well, because like even more than Newsies, it takes place in a universe without girls. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Um, even more than Dead Poets Society. There's not one fully shaped woman in this whole story. Yeah. There's the mom who's sad because her son died. And as I've said before, like if a story is just obsessed with boys or men and their relationships, I would vastly prefer for those stories to not pretend that they have roles for women. Yeah. I am really surprised that a movie, a -hmm. movie aimed at boys and probably girls. It has River Phoenix in it. So yes, someone was thinking of girls. (laughs) They came out like right dead center of the 1980s Mm -hmm. was so 
feelings focused and i get like the yes. outsiders was too like there were the- <laughs> i feel like this movie was made on the success of the outsiders i was thinking that while watching it this was a time for broody boys mm-hmm. with great hair mm-hmm. and one weird ear to get along <laughs> And share feelings and to love their dads, even though they shouldn't have to, and to hate their dads, even though their reasons are quite are questionable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. So there are lots of fathers that are referred to in this movie, primarily all of these kids' dads who beat the shit out of them. Too many fathers, some would Too say. many fathers. Who would you consider uh, for your daddy selection? Hmm. I mean, it's hard not to say Chris, because yeah. he is a character who just has sort of extra empathy and love to go around and like the part where he's saying to Gordy you know just about how like how amazing it is that he can make up these stories and he says like what does he say it's like God gave you something extra and you have to do your best to keep it I guess like oh my god like you just you want to be able to be that person and offer that to the people that you love and it just feels like the moments when somebody has that to offer you and especially when you like don't understand where it's coming from given the kind of resources that they have in life like these are our moments of grace in our lives so it has to be chris but i'm also going to give vern a little award as well a little daddy cup because I don't know. I love the space he occupies in the group. He's a little bit like Kirsten Dunst and Dick. If (laughs) people remember that character or conversation where like I argued at the time that she makes everything possible because like Arlene is the brains, but Betsy is the heart and like they can do anything because she believes they can do anything. And I think Vern is that for this group. And I also love that his one food that he would eat for the rest of his life is Cherry Pez. That's like such a 12-year-old boy (laughs) answer because that's like arguably not even food. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's Chris. There's the line, this is truncated, but he says, Gordy says, you're not my father. And he says, I wish the hell I was your dad. Kids lose everything unless there's someone there to look out for them. And if your parents are too fucked up to do it, then maybe I should. (laughs) So much of the conflict from my childhood came from feeling that way where like the people who were supposed to be looking out didn't know how to do it or weren't doing it well or were just checked out of the responsibility and then a series of real hits and misses looking for the people who could step in for those parents Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it's so sweet that he found someone pretty early on that he was in sync with also these moments where you know to your point where he says about like what his writing is like and where Gordy's brother in a flashback tells him that he thought his story was really good and thinking Mm -hmm. about how important that shit is when you're a kid to be seen for like what you're able to create and make Mm -hmm. just like truly very very beautiful scenes and you know again it's like these are scenes that are made by a person who makes things and clearly are imbued with the pride of being a person who makes things (laughs) knowing what it's like to get recognized by people who you admire yeah it ain't much but it's honest work (laughs) Alex, you know you're Chris, right? You're the Chris in all our lives. Well, that's so kind. I have long, in one way or another, looked up to and admired this character in a way that I think I'm going to die like him. So yeah, I I, <laughs> I never would be like, I'd be like, who are you like? I'm like, I'm like Chris from Stand By Me, but it's a person who has had a big imprint on me, and I appreciate that. Yeah, and I can see that, and I'm glad that he did, and also don't 
die ever. <laughs> Please just don't just don't do it. Yeah, I'll, I'll do to that for a couple of decades for sure. And obviously, I identify with Vern, who's just like <laughs> happy to be there, happy to be along for the ride. <laughs> Has seven cents. <laughs> To bring this back around, I love how this movie is based on the premise that it is like fundamentally a wholesome and positive activity for a bunch of 12 year old boys to want to go see a dead body. I think that's true. Yes. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, thanks for going on this journey. I love talking Stevie with you all the time. Thanks for helping me to not get hit by that train. You always do. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> okay. Bye. <laughs> All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much to Miranda Zickler for editing this episode. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the episode. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for producing the beats that make the transitions sound so good. Thank you, Lesh. Thank you so much for supporting us by listening to the show, by leaving a review, by uh, tweeting about it or talking about it on social media, by supporting on Patreon, by supporting on Apple Plus Podcast and getting bonus shows, whatever you do. Thank you so much for everything you do to make this thing possible. Next week, we will be joined by Amanda Smith and we'll be talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark. We look forward to sharing that with you. All right. I hope everything's good out there for you. Uh, look forward to joining you next week. You are good, everybody. Take care. <laughs>